Welcome to the Let's Talk About Care podcast. From carehome.co.uk and homecare.co.uk, the leading reviews websites for care homes and home care. Hi, it's Jill Rennie here and welcome to episode 27 of our Let's Talk About Care podcast, where I speak to the Chief Executive of the Home Care Association, Dr Jane Townsend. The Home Care Association is the UK's membership body, which currently represents over 2,300 home care provider members and offers advice on home care and business practice, policy, regulation, legal issues and HR assistance. In this episode, I discuss with Jane what impact the national insurance rise will have on the sector, the cost of living and soaring petrol prices and how this is affecting care workers in their day-to-day life and work recruitment and retention of staff and the difficulties providers are facing when recruiting overseas care workers despite being added to the government's shortage occupation list. We also talk about the importance of having more multidisciplinary agencies working together so when people come home from hospital the care package is already in place as well as how technology is shaping our health and well-being without you leaving your home and shares her vision with how technology of the future can help the sector. I hope you enjoy listening. The Let's Talk About Care podcast. So hi, Jane. Thanks ever so much for joining me on the Let's Talk About Care podcast. Can we start off, please, by asking you about the Adult Social Care Infection Control Fund? Because as you know, the government announced home care staff can get free COVID tests. They only need to test twice a week now, as well as receiving, you know, free PPE. But no new extension has been announced regarding the Adult Social Care Infection Control Fund. How do you think this is going to affect the sector in the future? Well, that's a very good question, Jill. We are very concerned. We were campaigning hard for that funding to continue because we understand how difficult it is for staff to have to isolate without receiving full pay. And 70% of home care is purchased by public sector organisations, councils, clinical commissioning groups, health boards, health trusts, and many of them offer fee rates which are below the amount needed to cover costs adequately. And the further north you go, the worse that becomes. So it's impossible for providers to find that extra funding to pay for full sick pay from their existing income. If they're not able to pay care workers for isolating, either the care workers are going to look for other work or they will have to go to work when they're COVID positive, which obviously nobody wants to do. And what we're seeing at the moment also is fear amongst staff uh, about supporting clients who are COVID positive in a way that they haven't been afraid before. And it's not um, that they're used to working with people with COVID, it's the fear of becoming infected themselves and having to have time off and then spreading it to the rest of their family who have to have time off, which will then affect household income. And that's become much, I mean, it's always been an issue, but it's become much more, imperative with cost of living rises and fuel costs 
and people are genuinely worried about how they're going to make ends meet. Yeah, because with the infl inflated cost of living, this is going to this is already affecting the sector anyway, isn't it? You know, with petrol prices rising, and what I've noticed is that even though the government in the last budget, in the spring budget, dropped the petrol prices by five pence per litre, I can't see that. So, how on earth are care workers managing to cope with all of these rises? Well, many of them are struggling and we're already hearing reports of them leaving to go to care homes, to go to the NHS, to work for agencies where or anywhere where travel is not required to the same extent. Because if you look across the data set that we have for the UK, um, the average miles travelled per home care visit is 4.33, very precise, but that's just straight out of mm. um, the Access Group's database. We estimate roughly one and a half million visits are done a day across the UK. So that's nearly over six million miles driven by home care workers every day. That's a lot of petrol um, and mm. that money has got to come from somewhere. We've seen one council, Norfolk Council, County Council, making extra funding available for fuel for home care workers which is fantastic. And mm. if, if that type of approach could be taken elsewhere, it would really help. But of course, that's one council out of 152 that are responsible for adult social care. So, and that's just in England, you know, obviously there's, there's issues in, in the devolved administrations as well. So we're just pushing really hard to try to um, get the government to change its mind because the other thing is that employers could find themselves going bust if they have if they try to pay um, with money that they haven't got and clearly that doesn't help anybody either if if home care isn't functioning is if home care capacity is inadequate which it already is then that has uh, an effect on the nhs because they can't get people home and then that means that <clears throat> it's difficult for you know it contributes to ambulance queues it contributes to cancelled operations and cancelled outpatient clinics and then you've got the council's trying to assess people with with emerging needs and then not being able to find support for them in the community so you know all together it, it creates a lot of issues and of course hope care homes are experiencing challenges because an outbreak is defined as two or more two or more people with covid and then when they're in outbreak they find that you know they're not allowed to take new admissions so even though there may be spare beds they're not necessarily able to use them so it's quite problematic when uh, infection rates become as high as they are. Mm. Um, um, when, when you've been um, campaigning for the petrol prices and also with, with the, um, the Adult Social Care Infection Control Fund to the government, what's been their feedback? I think the issue is in the Treasury, most, mostly. I think officials at the Department of Health and Social Care understand exactly what we're saying and agree but um it's all to do with the amount of funding and you know the government's stance is we've got to learn to live with covid we have to adapt and you know treat it as though it were influenza unfortunately covid19 is not like influenza at the moment the infection rate is much higher than influenza and the effects on the body, both short and long term, are different from influenza. Um, obviously, um, vaccination has made a big positive difference, and we'd strongly encourage everyone to keep 
their vaccination boosters up to date. No doubt at all that you know, vaccination has protected people and saved lives. What we don't know yet really is the extent to which vaccination is protecting against the longer term effects of COVID. So some people, unfortunately, that contracted COVID before vaccinations mm. um, are experiencing long term symptoms, you know, multiple organ damage. Um, recently published papers uh, indicate adverse effects on the brain, um, on the immune system as well. So we've got no real idea in the long term how this will affect population health. And not only that, but this is a long term um problem um so therefore we need long-term solutions don't we so you know we've, we've just got to keep on campaigning to the government and hopefully one day the government may listen and sort of like put extra precautions in for home care staff so that we don't have the backlog on the nhs that we're, that we're seeing at the moment well i think it's reasonable to find a way to learn with, to live with covid because we can't all remain locked up in our houses forever and nobody wants that and that creates other problems anyway but I think where we're missing proper strategic thinking on this is what do we need to do to make you know to reduce the risk and you know one thing that would be uh, in addition to vaccination which is clearly very very important but on its own isn't enough uh, is looking at how we can make inside air as safe as outside air so improving building ventilation um, there are people researching technologies like um, far UVC to disinfect the air um, on a routine basis, you know, so just reducing exposure. And we we seem in this country to have this major aversion to wearing masks, but it's such a simple um, um, measure that if everybody does, it makes a big difference. And if, if you look at um, infection spread in Japan right now compared with the UK, you know, they've managed to contain spread much more effectively. You know, vaccination levels are quite similar between us and Japan, but they have more of a culture of being respectful to each other and mask wearing, mm -hmm. um, which stems back, you know, from when they experienced SARS outbreak originally. And I just don't understand why everybody doesn't realize because you know it's not even people that have been vaccinated that are getting COVID are really experiencing unpleasant symptoms and they're feeling really poorly and then if their children end up off sick they miss loads of school and then you miss work you know you'd think that the inconvenience of it would make people want to um, <clears throat> change behaviors but I don't know it's it's quite a challenge Oh, I know. It, it, some, in some circumstances, it's almost like we've gone back to pre-pandemic behaviours. You know, my husband was in London the other week and it was, it was, you know, back to back, you know, just squashing onto the tube to get to where you needed to be. And he said he was practically the only one wearing a mask. Mm. You know, it, it's, it's the, the, we've got to change our behaviour, really, haven't we? Mm. I think so. And I think the messages coming from government that you know it's it's over <laughs> effectively um and that isn't strictly speaking what they've said but that's the the vibe um mm -hmm. has made people feel that it ha you know that it's all gone away mm. and it's all quite mild and not not terribly um damaging to health but we don't really know that for sure and certainly some of the research is quite disturbing mm.
Yeah, definitely. Um, going on to overseas recruitment now, um, you, well, the Home Care Association, yourselves, did a survey where 58% of home care managers said they will not be seeking overseas recruitment and will instead focus on hiring locally to fill job vacancies, vacancies sorry, despite care workers being added to the government shortage occupation list. How could the government have handled this better and what's the solution, Jane? I think it's important to remember how the home care sector is made up. There are a very large number of very small employers. So over 80% have got fewer than 50 employees. And the cost and complexity of overseas recruitment is quite off-putting to many. Um, some don't fully understand the processes and I think that will get better over time so we've for example asked Department of Health and Social Care to create a web page that sort of explains you know very simply what what you do um, some of our members who have already gone ahead and and um, adopted this approach you know some of them have had to hire lawyers immigration lawyers to help them um, through the process others have employed agencies that specialize in this but the cost per, you know, just getting a sponsorship license and then the various different, you know, costs of visas and all of the rest of it works out in the order of £5,000 per employee, you know, per person that you recruit. It might even be higher. It might even be, you know, 7000 And then um, some of our members have um, set up sort of uh, recruitment agencies within their own businesses and you know have got a goal to say bring in 200 um, uh, care workers on, and nurses from other countries and then you've got all of the the administration of advertising interviewing going through the sponsorship process you know well you've got your sponsorship license but going through the process of getting the visas and you know the all of that um, and that you know, if you cost that back, the, the amount of people that you need to do it, that's probably, you know, another three to five thousand pounds per recruit. Mm. So um, one of the other challenges is that there's a minimum salary threshold, which works out at ten pounds ten an hour, which is not at all an unreasonable salary threshold. But of course, it's higher than our national minimum wage at nine pounds fifty. Mm. And if councils are only paying, you know, five pounds eighty an hour or fifteen pounds eighty an hour, um, that doesn't even cover direct staff costs at national living wage. Never mind an extra seven thousand pounds to bring them in. And uh, do you know what I mean? So that yeah. the, the the costs of recruitment are just prohibitive. And then once you've become a sponsor and you've um, brought your overseas recruits here, there are quite strict rules that you have to abide by. They can't just go and change job. If they vanish, that's your responsibility as an employer. So I think understandably, um, providers are quite nervous about um, being able to manage that and you know the risks involved so if they can still employ locally 
they would rather do that. It, it may come to the point when it's not so easy. I think in some types of care settings, so care homes and also live-in care, it's probably a bit easier to um, manage the overseas recruits because another issue is accommodation and transport. So especially for home care, um, many of them won't necessarily have a British driving license or have a car or feel comfortable driving here. Some of them won't be able to afford to rent accommodation in parts of the country where we already know it's expensive. And then employers have got to find ways of, of supporting that. If you're in a care home setting or, or live in care, you know, the sort of a the living care, you've got your accommodation pretty much covered anyway. Um, mm. So there is, you know, it, there are sort of types of service where it's a bit easier to make it work than others. But I, I think time will tell, really. And I think as more providers successfully manage it, word will get around and they'll be telling each other. Um, and that may might encourage more. <clears throat> I think, you know, what what we would like to see is the costs being minimised. And, you know, if the Home Office say that the charges are related to the fact that they've got to monitor afterwards you know, so we do understand that there are costs for the government in this, but um, just in our sector, we're, you know, our, our, our collective revenue is very limited. And, you know, and I, I think the government needs to look at the costs of not having enough home care because the NHS then runs into difficulty dealing with its elective backlog and more people become unable to support themselves independently which then costs more money too so it's probably if you did a, an economic analysis of it it wouldn't really make a lot of sense to starve home care of the resources it needs I mean in an ideal world we need the salaries for care workers to go up to the point where they'd be sufficient for one person to support a family on that wage and then I think it would open up to it, it would then become interesting to a lot more people. Um, you know, in, in my previous role, I, I wrote a piece in a local newspaper about how difficult it was to recruit in a particular county. This is going back about seven years ago. And uh, somebody local wrote to me and said, um, I'm a, a, a male with married with two children. I would really like to work in care, but mm. I need to earn at least 2,000 500 pounds a month um and you know this would require a certain number of hours and um at, at a certain wage mm. and I thought actually you've got a good point there I mean I think at the time mm. it was it worked out at about at the time you know which is quite a few years ago about 12 pounds an hour mm. which isn't really a ridiculous amount is it no. um, it's just that society isn't willing to pay mm. this is it how do you think the um, the national insurance uh, rise is going to affect? You know, it, it's 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 like a taking for one hand and giving to another, isn't it? With care workers, you know, it's 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 almost like, you know, you we can we're going to take more national insurance, but here you go, here's some more money for the for the secretary, almost, isn't it? It is. I think it was unfortunate that that was the mechanism that they chose. Mm. Um, on the positive side, they have raised the salary threshold at which you have to start paying national insurance. Yeah. So that's gone up to 
12,000 or something of that nature, um, which will help. Um, uh, quite a few employers where possible have tried to increase the wages to cover that increase. Um, and it's sort of also the amount that a care worker has to pay will depend on how many hours they work as well. So it isn't a straightforward calculation um, <clears throat> at all. So, yeah, I, I, I think it was it was very unfortunate to do that in at the same time as not increasing the funding sufficiently to enable an increase in wages to cover it. Mm, yeah, it was. Yeah, and going back to previously with what you were saying with um, with um, re retaining and um, the care workers, I also think um, see if you if if you saw a career progression within within the sector as well, I think that might help retain staff as well. Well, I think in the larger organisations there is good career progression. I mean, in my previous role, we had different levels so you know start as a care and support worker and if you're in a care home you could become a shift leader and then a supervisor and then a deputy manager and then a, a registered manager and then some of them went on to become operations managers and one of them even went on to become a CEO before me so there are you know stories of people that have worked all the way up the system and you'll, you'll hear that across the whole sector and then in, in larger organizations so we had three and a half thousand employees so we had you know an HR department and a finance department and we had some IT IT teams and so some care workers you know people who started as care workers um, then went moved into HR or they moved what we, we created a couple of roles called care technologists so there were care workers who we trained in how to use digital solutions um, to support our residents and our, our home care um, clients and also support staff to support the people that they mm. um, were, were caring for. So I actually think that, you know, in the larger organization, uh, and, you know, we also um, uh, offered training to uh, uh, cohorts, several cohorts of care workers to become what we called advanced healthcare practitioners. So they were able to go and do level three and then level five. And, and when they'd done that, they were then able, if they wished to go to university and do a nursing degree which they could do in 18 months if they'd done those prior to qualifications and we funded that and then on, on the basis that they came back to work for us for you know a minimum of two years or whatever yeah. so there there are and, and you know and, and I think in in home care there are many different types of roles as well ranging from companionship uh, to you know the more domestic, like domestic support, right through to complex care with nursing, reablement work. Uh, I think digital will become increasingly important as more citizens <clears throat> and the NHS use more technology as well. So monitoring movement, falls, um, health monitoring remotely, more remote consultations. And so the care workers are going to need to have the skills to help people mm. <clears throat> so I, I think there are there are many many opportunities actually it's just that perhaps we're not very good always at articulating them and of course with so many very small providers um, sometimes you can get a bit 
there's nowhere to go within your own organization yeah. but we do see a lot of movement from one organization to another mm-hmm. and you know I also in my previous role some of our care workers they decided that they were going to go and train to become paramedics or um, you know go and, and and get healthcare assistant roles or whatever we did have movement in the other direction so there were some nurses from the local hospital who decided that they wanted to come and give working in a care home a go and and one of the you know so a couple of them became registered managers they said it was really really hard and went back to the hospital <laughs> they had, had a lot of um, respect after that but you know I, I think yeah. we, we I think there are many opportunities across the whole system and that, that's how we need to see it mm-hmm. um but I, I think it would be good to have I mean there already are qualifications but in countries like New Zealand what they've done is they've they've looked at the population need and they've sort of they've kind of um identified sort of four levels of need if you like it's kind of basically sort of low to high and and you know level four is the most complex uh client you know people with the most complex needs and that could be physical, social, um, mental health complexity. Um, and, and then there are sort of matching levels of qualification. So a level four qualification is sort of what's needed to help you meet the needs of the people with sort of level four needs very broadly. You know, that's, that's how they've done it. Um, and I think that's a good idea. And I'd like to see more of that, you know, and we do have a to sort of slightly goes on in this country. So some councils, for example, um, certainly in, in the care home world, in, in my previous experience, they would um, have maybe three different levels, you know, like sort of regular residential care, dementia care, and then sort of specialist nursing care. And, and they would pay different amounts for those different levels, if you like. And then you could make sure then that the staffing needs, staffing competencies and skills are sort of matched but it isn't very um it's not it there is no kind of universal system for doing that if you like um and it's going to be difficult to do it very precisely because unlike the nhs where everybody's on agenda for change and you you can sort of set grades and all the rest of it because um care a lot of it's sort of delivered through the independent sector obviously individual employers like to have you know different terms and conditions and different ways of doing things because that you know then then it's a case of em- employees deciding <laughs> who they want to go and work for based on mm-hmm. on what's on offer and but I, I i think in general you know that 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 having some national qualifications which which there are but we could do a bit more work to to really identify what what the population needs are and then match the training and skills and qualifications because I think the other thing which is quite important to say is that not everybody who comes into the care sector wants to go to college um there's a lot of really brilliant care workers who are just very practical they've learned on the job they're fantastic at their job we don't need to put them off by telling them they've got to go and do this and that and the other qualification which is what's happening in some places like Wales you know Mm. I think it's we've just got to understand that the workforce is quite diverse and you know those that want to develop their career can either do so sort of up the management chain or they can do it you know up the caregiving chain but so you know through going through to say a nursing route or and even within nursing you know I mean in in my previous role um I wanted to develop the nurses that we had to specialise in, say, dementia care or frailty or end of life care. So even when you've become a nurse, there's lots of different things. And, you know, why don't we have um, a a sort of 
and nursing qualification for, for nurses who, who support older people. Like you've got mm. consultant geriatricians. Why don't we have the, the sort of equivalent in nursing? Yeah. Um, so I think there's just lots of things that we could do and, and you know, more physiotherapists, more occupational therapists, because a lot of the work we do is, you know, people have had, you know, hip replacements, let's say, and they come home and, you know, they're sort of struggling to mobilise and, and get back to doing the activities of daily living having more of those skill sets too within the care sector would be very positive. I mean, obviously we, we can access them through the NHS, but it isn't always that straightforward. There just aren't enough of them. <laughs> you are chairperson of Creedel. Um, what is Creedel and what are the technical, technical, technological things does, does the company provide to increase health and well-being as we age? So, so Cradle is a, yeah, a technology startup and the aim is to support older people to live well at home. Mm. And many companies are doing this. So in a way, it's not you know, anything new. The thing that is distinct about Cradle is that we are using television as the vehicle um, for, the tech, you know, for the technology platform. So instead of using an iPad or an iPhone, I mean, the, the, the software will work on iPads and iPhones, but many older people have a television in their home. And uh, there's a, a, like a sort of set top box thing that kind of sits on top of the television. It's got a camera in it. And that means, and already it's being used um, in, in a number of NHS trusts and by a number of councils, but the doctors really like it because um, when they want to do a remote consultation with people they can actually see the whole room so they get more information that you know you can have a couple sitting on the sofa um you know and then the doctor can speak to both of them together whereas if you're just holding an ipad you know and um, one of the things about um ipads and things like that is that when you get older your skin gets colder and drier and then the screens are not as responsive so some people find that quite difficult and then they find it quite hard to hold them as well if they've yeah. if they're a bit frail um but then um cradle is is it's got that ability to do the communication but it's also just a platform um so there's also remote health monitoring devices that can be uh, connected to the Cradle platform via Bluetooth. So again, this is being used in, in some NHS trusts. So uh, different devices like pulse oximeters or blood pressure monitors or whatever, so that the data from the person just gets Bluetoothed straight into the NHS uh, trust database. And then any deviation from normal from that for that person will then be flagged to the clinician and then interventions can be put in place so it's very responsive to changes in person's need and then you can also connect internet of things devices to the cradle platform um, so you know monitoring movement and falls and that kind of thing mm. in the future um, all kinds of other devices will be able to you know connect to it so for example um, <clears throat> devices to monitor the ambient environment so the temperature the humidity you can get even things like fire alarms that you can test remotely using those sort of things. So if you're a housing association, let's say, and you're responsible for 35,000 units of housing, right now you've got to send somebody round to do those checks. Um, but if you think at the moment with the sort of cost of living crisis, that if somebody is worried and turns their heating off, let's say, um, because they can't afford to pay the bill, 
uh, if you're the housing manager, you'd be able to see straight away from the temperature, any change in the temperature, uh, you, you know, on, on your remote monitoring device. And then you could go and check on someone, you know, Mrs. Jones, are you OK? We've noticed that, you know, the temperature in your house has fallen really low and we're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you could see an ability to be more proactive um, mm. in future. So, so you know, we, we aren't at that point yet. We, you know, all technology startups have got, you know, different points in their roadmap. So, you know, the the the, the, product, the part the product at the moment we've got, um, the you know, the video con the consultation part and the some of the remote health monitoring part, um, and that's all being managed through the NHS, um, some local authorities as well. So we've looked at different use cases. So. Um, supporting people, you know, informal carers too, who are looking after loved ones at home that might be on, say, end-of-life care pathways, um, or <clears throat> people that have had COVID, let's say, um, and uh, wanting to keep an eye on how they are. Um, the NHS is putting much more emphasis now on, you know, various different descriptions, but hospital at home, virtual wards, um, anticipatory care is another um, term that they're using another type of service and that's where they've identified people in a population from data that they have who maybe have two or more long-term conditions and meet various criteria and kind of need a bit more um, attention if you like you know so that the idea is to find a way of keep of, of maintaining people's health at home so that they don't end up being admitted to hospital because of a crisis um mm -hmm. so it's being more practice so we're going to see more of that which i think is a really good thing so it's quite exciting it's just how we get it all to tie up um behind the scenes yeah I, th I can really see it happening in another few years actually where we'll all be monitored like that won't we as BH, you know, and uh, yeah, I think it'll become more normalised, won't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, it's all good stuff. Um, you have a science background. What made you transition into the care sector? Um, probably a series of accidents. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I spent the first, um, so I, I did a, a master's degree and a PhD and then spent 14 years in research and development for... Yeah some of the world's largest bioscience companies. And um, my final role um, was global head of bioscience research for Syngenta, which is one of the world's largest agribusinesses. But prior to that, I was in AstraZeneca. And before that, it was Zeneca and then ICI. Um, and my focus was global food production. I was concerned about how we feed the world. Um, and I left there in the end only because um, our children were four and three years old and I had to do a lot of traveling so I had to go to Switzerland once a week the, the states about once a month and then other places in between and it just became impossible to be a decent mother and and fit in all of that international travel and everything yeah. so I quit um, and then I, I became interested in I'd never really thought about um I'd, I'd been interested in, in global food production, but never really thought about the impact of what we eat on our long term health. Mm. So I went back to university by distance learning to study nutrition, mm -hmm. um, but I kind of missed being in a large organization. And so one of my former colleagues suggested that I applied to become a non-executive director. And so I did. And the first role I um, 
was appointed to was on the board of an NHS trust and I was on that board for nine years but sort of halfway along that in, in that period one of my colleagues on that board saw an advert for a, a non-executive role on the board of a care company and said oh you'd be good at that Jane you know why don't you apply so I did and so I got that one as well so I had sort of two non-exec roles and then I, I set up my own business teaching about nutrition and and long-term health <clears throat> so I, I was you know that the non-exec roles are very part-time you know they're sort of you know two or three days a month um so the rest of the time I uh, each you know but then the, so between them possibly like a week a month and then the rest of the time I I could spend building my own business but then um there was a bit of a um a corporate issue where um some senior staff left quite suddenly and so the non other non-execs asked if i'd be willing to temporarily stand in to be interim ceo whilst they recruited a new one mm-hmm. um and initially i said no because i was really busy doing my business and what have you but that so that was a, like on a thursday but by monday <laughs> i was interim ceo um and then i kind of got hooked and so when they advertised the role and and got got Odges Bernstein to search for a a new CEO I applied and then they decided to appoint me so I kind of accidentally became a care CEO (laughs) um, and yeah I just really love the sector and and uh, you know working obviously my experience on the NHS um, board um, and we started off as a mental health and learning disability trust and then we became a foundation trust and then we took over um, community health services, so community mm-hmm. hospitals and, um, and all the sort of district nursing services and everything. So that was really uh, interesting experience and made me understand a lot more about how the NHS works and, and how it works in kind of local health systems. And, and when I became CEO of, of a care company, um, engaged with NHS colleagues from that position and found myself having to spend a lot of time educating I I hadn't actually realized how little everybody understands about how uh, social care works and Mm. what kind of services are provided and um, so I think you know there are many opportunities to work together Um, many of the skill sets are very complementary and you know during the pandemic we saw home care and care home workers being asked to perform even more tasks that previously were solely done by district nurses Mm -hmm. and I think with the right training and support more could be done there but what I think we really need to do is have a lot more multidisciplinary working on the ground because Mm -hmm. as it is if if you're in a home care agency and let's say you're asked to support someone that is discharged from hospital and then they come home and you you go and visit for them for the first time and you find that they've got a really bad pressure sore that nobody had told you about so you need to go and talk to the district nurses and get them involved or then you might find that actually their house was flooded while they were in hospital it's not actually safe to live in it at the moment so then you have to get onto the social work teams you you may need to liaise with a local care home to move them there temporarily while everything gets fixed you know so you're often you, you often have to deal with the local pharmacist the local gps so all the time the home care workers are having to link and liaise with lots of different professionals anyway mm. quite often they're not 
treated with the respect that they deserve um, and that can cause many issues too mm. so I think it you know in the in the best example so again you know my previous role we were supporting a gentleman who very sadly was diagnosed with motor neurone disease and he was only in his 40s and he was married with three children and that was a really good example of how it can work well so the medical consultant neurologist uh, he came down um to to meet with the family and then um, the district nurses were there uh, our home care staff were there and the, the consultant explained to everybody you know about this illness and what might happen and what the needs were and then the district nurses trained the care staff in particular tasks that needed to be done and then the home care team you know I think there were about, about 12 of them all together that in rotations were kind of you know working and supporting this family and then if, if anything came up they'd call the district nurses if anything more significant came up you know they'd get the the doctor involved but generally it all got managed at the lowest level possible but with that sort of multidisciplinary input and that worked really really well and I think you know that kind of approach and and if you can train everybody together um that you know and one of the things I also learned is that um the training uh, I, I was in one meeting and a consultant geriatrician admitted that she had never been trained in how to replace this particular type of um, compression bandage that they use nowadays for wound care. And I thought it was very brave of her to do that. Um, but actually loads of other people didn't know how to do it either. There was like one nurse that had got this special training. And then if that nurse wasn't there, then no one else could do it. And you sort of think, actually, why not just get everybody together that is, is having to support people with this particular you know compression bandage or whatever it was and train them together so it, it's increasing the skills of everybody involved and then we can all work much more flexibly across across boundaries um you know people think about you know the nhs is is a single entity it really isn't you know even in a local system it, you know there were three trusts <laughs> where i was at the time and then you know that you've got the gps who are independent then you know they're not they, they they work under nhs contracts but they're not nhs employees and then you've got pharmacists that are independent and and so on so even the nhs itself it isn't a single entity and um and sometimes the communication even within those groups doesn't work very well you know sometimes messages don't come from the hospital back to the gp in time and so on so i think you know that there's there's masses that can be done if if people have got that mutual professional respect and if the the communication systems supported us and that's another issue you know but even that's improving so some of our members you know some of our members are, are suppliers of, of technology systems to the care sector and quite a lot of work has been going on behind the scenes to enable access to the GP summary record to care services. That doesn't mean that people are diagnosing anybody or anything. It just means that they can see the summary records so that they know that, you know, what Mrs. Jones's medicines were before she went to hospital, let's say, or any relevant information. Because sometimes people get discharged from hospital and the hospital forgets to tell the care service some vital piece of information. Um, and then that has a negative effect 
on the care that's provided because if you don't know for example that someone's got cancer and you think all they've got is dementia you're not necessarily going to be aware that they might need pain relief and if do you know what I mean so it's yeah. some really bad communication things can happen so anything that can support that you know through better use of systems better information exchange will be a very positive thing for the people receiving um, care and support yeah and going back to technology hopefully in the future that that might just sort of like be the answer to sort of like having you know integrating all these systems into one smooth pathway from from the NHS to to the social care sector I mean, I somehow doubt that we'll ever kind of reach that nirvana. You know, we're never going to end up with one single system. <laughs> um, but I do think that we are, you know, there's you know, potential to improve that very substantially. <clears throat> and, um, you know, already, for example, so, you know, we used a, a, a digital care record, tech care delivery management system in home care. And then we given login permissions to the ambulance service. So if if they happened to come and needed detailed information about someone, they could get it. Um, but, you know, in, in the United States, they're probably at least 20 years ahead of us here in, in all of this type of technology. And, you know, for example, if, if you're in a care home in, in North America and you need to go into hospital, the care home basically just has to press a button and then you get a sort of hospital passport that goes electronically to the hospital. Also, you know, things like if you send a urine sample off for analysis, the path lab will send the results directly back to the care home as well as to the GP so that you're not having to constantly chase what's happened to the results, you know, all this kind of thing. So that's already happening over there. I, mm. I hope that in years to come, we will have those sort of um, abilities here. It's technically possible. It's just, yeah, you know, we're just not quite there yet. Mm. Oh, well, fingers crossed it happens mm. sooner rather than later. Um, you're relentlessly busy. What motivates you and drives you in life? In our sector, it's very easy to be motivated because, you know, most people who work in our sector want to improve lives and want to enable people to live as well as they can um, within the constraints that they can. And there are so many issues that need to be fixed. <laughs> um, I feel, you know, also... Um, very passionately about our workforce you know predominantly female workforce um, they do such an important job and it's not always easy for them to have a voice I'm now in a position where I can amplify their voice and amplify the voice of the people receiving services who also don't often have much say um, and their families so you know, it's going to be us one day as well, Jill, you know, if we don't sort it out, um, what's, what is the future going to look like? You know, already, you know, we can't cope. And by the time I get in my, in my mid 80s, there are going to be twice as many of us as there are now. I know. So it's just about making it, it's, it's, I guess the golden thread throughout my whole career has been about healthy life expectancy, you know, sort of um, encouraging ways, uh, enabling people to live as healthily and as happily as possible for as long as possible, because who doesn't want that? Um, and, you know, initially I was driven by, um, 
I was when I was a child, I was worried about, uh, you know, um, pictures came back about famine in Ethiopia. And I was sort of thinking, that, how come we haven't got enough food to feed the world? That's ridiculous. You know, actually, we did, but it, it wasn't distributed fairly. Um, but, you know, many strides have been made in, on that front. There is still food poverty. And unfortunately, we're going to be seeing it even in our own country, mm. which is particularly shocking. Um, but then, um, you know, going on into sort of nutrition and health and, and how what we eat and, and drink and think actually affects our long term health <clears throat> um, through to older and disabled people. And, you know, actually, I've been constantly amazed by how long people can remain healthy for and mobile if they understand that they need to keep moving and you know need to eat as well as they can and so on so there's an education piece that drives me I guess as well um but we we may many of us will live until we're 100 who wants to spend 20 years of that 100 years not being able to do anything nobody so and and I you know I just I always I love talking to older older people because they've got so much wisdom and experience and I feel that as a society we've kind of lost our way in valuing that Um, I think we we've we've had that attitude for a while now I mean like when you when you do speak to the elderly they give you so much good advice don't they Mm. Um, you know something that they can only give rather than sort of like you know speaking to the to, to someone who's I don't know who's who's in their 20s yeah so yeah. yeah I mean you know in my previous role if things if I was having a bad day I'd just nip over to one of the care homes and start talking to the to the residents because like nine times out of ten they go oh dear you know don't worry well I wouldn't burden my problems but you know they would just have such a good attitude and yeah. and then you kind of think well if they're sort of sitting there being cheerful why aren't the rest of us you know so I I just yeah I find it very um enjoyable being in the company of of people and and you know um also some of the people that we supported with disabilities you know they were all had such interesting lives and had done such interesting things so it's that sort of richness of people and you know just the different people that you meet Mm. I mean we, we often say that there should be you know a soap opera about hope about care because you know there's like loads of programs on telly about hospitals aren't they but care is far more interesting no one would ever believe half of what actually goes on I don't think yeah. um yeah yeah this is it oh and looking back in in your life what has been your biggest achievement it's an interesting question you know when I was younger I used to be quite driven by achieving things but as time went on, I sort of realised that sort of so what? Um, and I'm not really focused on that as such anymore. I think I just um, want to make a difference, um, want to be able to serve in, in any way that I can. And ultimately, I think it's it's trying to find a way to, to be as, as balanced and happy as you can I think yeah. if you if you can achieve that, there's 
that's probably your you know because it, it's hard it's really hard to do that and and to encourage people around you and help them to do that it's it's not easy uh, you know there are many pressures on everybody aren't there but you, you can get qualifications and you can make money and all that so what though you know at, at the end of the day if you if you're not feeling fulfilled and and enjoying um, and and I think happiness is is a word that can be misunderstood in a way because no one can go through life being happy every day all the time that that isn't really it but it's it's about that sense of sort of balance and that you can cope and manage and you know some things will will go well other things less well but it's not making yourself ill or whatever with worry if things don't go so well and so it's trying to keep that that level, that balance, I think, um, and trying to and trying to make a difference. And what are your hopes for the sector, and what are your future plans for the Home Care Association? Well, our vision is for a society where we can all live well at home and flourish in our communities, and home care is part of that, not the only part, of course. We want to enable home care, um, the home care sector to be um, of a high quality and sustainable so that there's enough support to enable all of us as citizens, but you know, also linking in to supporting informal carers and voluntary groups. You know, there's a whole myriad of different ways that that support can be provided and, and as you said too you know technology solutions so we want the sector to be stable and to be good quality and to meet people's needs you know I think at the moment it's quite it's it's evolved in a way that is quite prescriptive you know social workers tell you what you've got to do and you've got this amount of money and you've got to go for these amount of minutes and actually it doesn't it doesn't really work as well as it could in many ways. Um, it, it, interestingly, in the self-funded part of the market, when you know the person receiving care is effectively the commissioner because they've got the money, um, you know that they're, they're saying this is what I want, and that's what happens. Now, why can't everybody have that experience? Now, in theory, there are direct payments that are supposed to enable that, but there are various problems with that approach. You know, mm. number one, the amount of money that's available for direct payments typically isn't enough. Uh, yeah. Secondly, councils can still be quite prescriptive about what they can and can't be used for, which rather defeats the object of it. Um, and thirdly, quite a lot of people find it quite burdensome having to be the person who's the employer mm. and find your own personal assistance and deal with it when they leave or go off sick or all of that you know it's quite a it's quite a challenge um so i we want to see not just more funding but how that funding is used to change and to be very much focused on meeting the needs of the people receiving services and the needs of the workforce too, because if we don't get those things lined up, there won't be any care workers. Um, we want to see um, more um, innovation, but not just for innovation's sake, you know, to, to make things um, better quality and more efficient. 
and to do more preventative work. So uh, basically what's happened over the years is that gradually the eligibility criteria have risen and risen. So the, the people typically don't receive state funded home care until quite near to the end of their life, you know, one to two years maybe. And actually the real potential value comes in shifting the demand curve. So um, uh, intervening or, or supporting people earlier with quite low level support, really, but, you know, just to encourage um, mobility to be maintained and those community connections, because often it's the it's the loneliness and it's mm. the uh, lack of mobility that makes lives gradually more and more bounded. And, and when people end up not being able to go out, um, they lose their their confidence, they lose their physical strength. And then you see it's a sort of downward spiral. So it's it's really helping people to stay connected to their communities and um, making everybody feel that they can still make a valuable contribution as well. Um, I don't really believe in retirement as such. I mean, I think if you want to work and you can, you should carry on because it gives you purpose and meaning. And in Japan, they've actually created what they call silver centers and older people can go to those centers and they do meaningful work that needs to be done for which they get paid. Um, and in that process, they're obviously meeting other people um, and feeling valued and, and that they're doing something worthwhile. Now, not everybody wants to do paid work. That's fine. But others can do voluntary work or others can um, join clubs where they can have um, interests and so on. So that's what we want to see. You know, not home care. Home isn't the isn't suitable for everybody. You know, um, some people really do need the support of care homes at certain places and um, housing with care we haven't really talked about but um, I really like that as a model because people have got their independence in their own apartment but they've also got the benefits of community and support mm. if they need it and you know the size of the properties is more appropriate <laughs> so yeah um, I think um, I'd like to see more of that those housing with care type facilities um, as well and more okay. attention I mean a, a lot of the things which are in the white paper you know the, the people at the heart of care a lot of the aspirations in there are really good and that's what we want to see but what what I think some of us are struggling to um, to see is how that vision is going to be turned into reality yeah. particularly with the money that's available but also there isn't an implementation plan really mm. so that's what we want to see how we move from that very worthy ambition to it becoming a reality for all of us and then just the funding model for it as mm. too so yeah oh well fingers crossed maybe one day we could we can see more of these popping up as well oh well listen jane thank you so much for your time and for talking to us on our let's talk about care podcast thank you so much it's a pleasure thank you for inviting me the let's talk about care podcast Oh, I really enjoyed talking to Jane and it was really interesting to hear about her determination and drive to get the government to listen to the sector about care worker pay and the worry the sector has with the current rise in living and fuel costs and how the association is continually pushing to get the government to change its mind regarding the infection control fund. I hope also we can soon follow the trend set by the United States where from a touch of a button you can achieve diagnosis directly from hospital to the care providers. Thanks for listening and see you next time.
from carehome.co.uk and homecare.co.uk, the leading reviews websites for care homes and home care.